0: Pastor Jason. I'd like to thank you for taking the time to listen to our podcast from United Church. We pray that this blesses and encourages you in your walk with God. If you'd like to find more information about our church, including our address, upcoming events, or find a place to give, feel free to visit our website at fergusunited.org. God bless and enjoy the message.
1: Feel bad yesterday. I didn't say happy birthday to Brother Brooks on his birthday. Here we are. Here we are in church. So happy birthday, Pastor. Day late, but Amen. Great to be back here tonight, and and I'm um, excited for this lesson. Thank you to uh, Sister Brooks for that worship. I love those songs that were sung today. Just such uh, heartfelt worship, right? Living our lives for the Lord. Amen. Amen. So we're gonna we're gonna talk about a, a few different topics today. Uh, brother, if you could hit that uh, projector there, that computer plug-in. Thank you so much. Uh, how many of you guys have ever played the game of telephone before? Anybody played the game of telephone? Don't worry, we're not going to do that. But uh, there's, this, uh, there's this concept, there's this uh, attack against Scripture that claims that uh, we got the Bible through the game of telephone. So if you remember, the game of telephone starts on one side of the room, and then somebody whispers it to somebody else, and by the time you get all the way to the end, it's a totally different message, and it's funny, people laugh, and, you know, the game of telephone, right? It's kind of goofy. And so some people look at the Bible and say, what was written down way back in the ancient world? What you have here, this Bible, it's not the same thing. It's like the game of telephone, it changed over time. That's a, that's a pretty common attack. Maybe some of you have heard that same uh, attack against scripture. But here's the deal. That's, there's no evidence for that claim at all. So we're going to combat that concept today. And we're going to look at a few things. Here's, a, here's kind of the, the main question for today. Is we're going to ask, has the Bible been accurately transmitted And transmission just means it's moving forward, right? Has the Bible been passed down over the many, many years? And is it the same Bible or the same book that Moses wrote or Amos? Do we still have those? Was the the book that Matthew wrote, do we still have that same Matthew today? So that's going to be kind of our overall main issue that we're dealing with today. And here's a line that I'm going I'm to try to keep bringing out. This is going to be maybe our tagline for tonight, and that is God gave His Word, God kept His Word, and He preserved His Word. So those three things are very important. We talked yesterday about how God gave us His Word through inspiration, and He gave us this, this great uh, set of books. So He gave His Word, God has kept His Word, and He has preserved His Word. So just a few things that We're going to try to get to, uh, sorry, the little bit smaller font there, but we're going to define what preservation even means. We want to understand what, when we're talking about God's word being preserved, we want to know what, what does that even mean? And then we're going to find out, has God's word been preserved? It has, okay. And then, uh... The two things we're going to deal with at the end deal with translations. Which translation of the Bible should we use? Because there's a lot of different translations. So we'll talk a little bit about translations. So just to get a few terms out of the way, there's uh, this, that little uh, abbreviation MSS, that just means manuscript. So a manuscript, it's just an ancient document. So, When the ancient Bible authors were writing, they would write on uh, these, these ancient scrolls or ancient documents that today, when scholars are looking and finding these things, they call them manuscripts. Now, a manuscript might just be this thing right here. It's just a little scrap. There might be two verses on it, or it might be an entire scroll with numerous books on it so manuscript it does not define how big the item is it just means it's an ancient document so that is a manuscript and then even at the bottom here uh, these things called a codex that's just an ancient form of a book but i don't think we're going to have to worry about that too much today so let's break down a couple things here now we'll kind of take this step by step. So the Old Testament, that was written in mostly Hebrew with a little bit of another language. But the Old Testament, when Moses was writing, uh, Joshua, they were mostly writing in the language of Hebrew. So those original documents are what we call the autographs. So the very books that uh, Samuel wrote, the very books that Jeremiah wrote, when they were writing those documents, that's what we call the autographs, the very first ones. The problem is, is that we don't have those autographs anymore. And that's actually the case for pretty much every ancient historical document, whether it's of the the ancient historian, the guy named Herodotus or Thucydides, these guys with these crazy Greek names. We don't have their autographs either. We don't have their originals. So how do we have the Bible today? How do we have that transmission? Well, it's through copies. It's through those manuscripts. It's it's when uh, Genesis was copied and then copied again and copied again. That's how we have our Bible is through those manuscripts. And then scholars would look at the manuscripts, and then that's how we have translations, right? Because obviously Moses was not writing in English, right? So we have, uh, for example, the, the different scholars that were involved in the King James Bible. They were looking at these ancient manuscripts and they would read them in that language and then they would translate them into English. So that's, that's a little bit in a, in a quick nutshell. So we want to break, break a couple of these down because, as I said, one major problem is that we don't have the autographs. So has God's word been preserved? So let's look at this preservation point over here. All preservation means is that God's word has been kept completely intact. Meaning we haven't lost any of it. And that's what we talked about last night. We, We understand that God's word was given and we received his word. And so when we talk about God's word being preserved... We are trusting and believing that God has gave his word, he has kept his word, and he has preserved his word. So that's what we mean by saying preservation, that through all of the copies, we have not lost God's word. So that's an that's important thing to, to grasp. <clears throat> so since we do not have the original autographs, the big question for us, uh, for here is, Are the copies reliable? Can we trust those copies? Because that's all we have. We don't have the autographs. Now, I want to pause here just for a moment and just help us to understand that it's a miracle that we even have any of the Bible in the first place. Because when you look at the ancient books from the ancient world from... 2,000 years ago, 3,000 years ago, I'm not going to list all of these off, but there's a few things that are very interesting to me. Uh, There's a guy by the name of Tacitus. He's considered to be the best Roman historian. He was living uh, around 100, and we only have about half of all the books that he wrote. So we've lost a lot of the things that he had written. Another historian, his name is Livy, another Roman historian. He wrote 142 books, and we only have 35 of them. Uh, All of the records, has anybody ever heard of Alexander the Great? You guys heard of Alexander the Great? He was one of the, the, probably the greatest conqueror, or at least one of the greatest conquerors in history. He never lost a battle well, he died, so maybe that's one battle. But, uh, but he, he didn't lose any battles on the battlefield. And here's the thing with Alexander. All of the historians that wrote about him when he was alive, we don't have any of those anymore. All that we know from Alexander comes from hundreds of years after he died. So that's pretty interesting. There's, a, there's another historian. Well, maybe I don't have to go through all of these. My point is this. These books that I said that we lost so much of, they are much older, or excuse me, uh, not much older. uh, The Old Testament is much older than these people that I just mentioned. And we have a lot of the New Testament, and these guys, we only have half or 25% of what they wrote. Some of these guys, we don't have anything. So I point that out to say that in the ancient world, it's very easy to to lose documents or it's very easy for somebody to come in and, and burn a library or for a library to accidentally get burned down or an earthquake or whatever the case is, it's easy to not have something in the ancient world. But when we look at the Bible, it's shocking how much we do have because it was kind of a miracle. It's kind of like God gave us his word and he kept his word and he can preserve his word. Because it's the word of God. So let's look at what we do have. Let's look at these copies a little bit. Maybe. If my clicker will work. There we go. Took a couple. So we're going to look at the Old Testament just really briefly. I have a whole lesson just on the Old Testament. So I'm going to try to condense this a little bit. In the 1970s, just a little bit before Brother Luke was born, there was uh, this uh, – I'm just kidding, brother. I'm just kidding. But there was this, uh, this, this uh, archaeological dig. They were down in this cave, and, and the, the, uh, they were kind of digging around. And, and long story short, they found these little things that they actually thought were uh, cigarettes, uh, and then they pulled them out and realized, oh, they're metallic. Oh, they're silver. And then they were able to uh, unravel them uh, with, with very special technology, and they were able to read them. And this was shocking, because these things are about 2,600 years old, and they are from Numbers chapter six. And it's called the High Priestly Benediction, where, where God says, you know, uh, I will uh, cause my face to shine upon them, and I will put my name upon the people, and it's a very beautiful passage in Numbers six. And this is one of the very oldest biblical artifacts that we have found that is quoting the Bible. And it's shocking because it shows that the, these, uh, these ancient books of the Old Testament have very ancient sources. And so it's, uh, again, very shocking that we have this. And there's a few other things we could talk about as well, but I'm trying to go quickly. Well, if we move forward, <clears throat> excuse me, this dates to very close to Jesus' time. And this was this is actually very, uh, very interesting how they were able to do this. Now, this is uh, called the Engedi scroll. And you can see uh, what, what does this kind of look like? What's anybody see? Maybe what's wrong with this thing? It's a little charred because this was found in a burnt down synagogue. The Romans had it looks like burnt this thing down. And uh, for many years, this thing just looked like charcoal. But through laser technology, it's shocking what computers can do because this was very recent within the last less than a decade they were able to do this. Laser technology, they're able to, what you see here is a digital opening of the scroll and they can read it. It's it's amazing. It's it's very incredible. You can see the penny there just to show you how how big this thing is. And this is quoting Leviticus in uh, two different chapters and this is, again, from just uh, very close to Jesus' time period. And it's what we would call the authoritative text. Now, what is the authoritative text? It's the Old Testament that was, uh, the, that was kept in the temple that all of the other synagogues, they would bring their scrolls to the temple to, ma- to make sure that their Old Testament matched the Old Testament at the temple. It's it's very interesting to see how careful the Jews were with dealing with their Old Testament. And so, again, there's maybe some more in-depth things we could look at. But when God told the kings and the scribes and the prophets in the Old Testament, when it says that Moses wrote something or it says that Samuel wrote something, they were supposed to take very close and careful care of the words that God had given them. And so uh, even the kings, they were supposed to get up every seven years and read the the books that Moses wrote. The Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, all of those books. They were supposed to care for these words that God had given, God's word. Well, it continued all the way up until Jesus' time. And this authoritative text, my point with pointing this out is that the Jews were very careful with their Old Testament. And if you trace through the history, you can see how all there's so much consistency. There's so much care in how these copies were made all the way down. Because if you read our Bible and you read Numbers or you, or you read Leviticus, it matches these ancient archaeological finds. And that's pretty fantastic. A few other things, if, uh, if we keep going. A very famous find is the Dead Sea Scrolls. This was found in Israel in the 1940s and there were just hundreds and hundreds of ancient manuscripts and hundreds of Bible documents and all kinds of things that were found buried and and scholars started to dig them out and they were very careful with how they unraveled them and they started to read them. And and one thing I want to point out is that these Dead Sea Scrolls, they match, a lot of them, uh, the majority of them match that authoritative text. And that's shocking because nobody has seen those Dead Sea Scrolls for 2,000 years. So let me, point, let me, let me share uh, one example with you. They found this Isaiah scroll. Now, Brother Brooks, how far is it from this door to this door, would you say? About
0: 40 feet.
1: It's about 40 feet. There's an Isaiah that's called the Isaiah scroll, and it's over 20 feet long. It's, it, so, think of, think of just this very long document. They would, they would kind of roll it up, and it was a scroll. And this Isaiah scroll, nobody had seen it for very close to 2,000 years. Now, remember, what are we combating? This idea that the Bible is like the game of telephone. So let's say we've got this Isaiah. Everybody remember the book of Isaiah? There's a passage we always read at Christmas time. I right? friends run to us. A child was born unto us. the son is given. And there's some beautiful passages in Isaiah. And we have that book right here in our Bibles. Well, here's the crazy thing. If you look at our Isaiah in, in, in English or, or even the manuscripts of, of Isaiah that was in Hebrew, and then you look at that Isaiah scroll that nobody had seen for 2,000 years— guess what? They match. And that, that is shocking because the, the Hebrew scrolls that we use for our King James Bible, they had been copied and copied for many, many, many years over many, many uh, groups of people, different scribes. And even though that Isaiah had been copied over and over again, when we found the Dead Sea Scrolls, we found that the Isaiahs matched. Almost identically. Maybe if, you, uh, if it says Jerusalem, maybe there's two L's in it or something like that. There's very minor, minor differences in them. And what is that trying to show? The Bible is reliable. Those copies are reliable. What you have here, yes, it's the same thing that Isaiah wrote. We didn't lose anything. Because God gave us his word. He kept his word and he has preserved his word. Amen. So if we keep going, there's this ancient, well, not too ancient, Middle Ages, around the 500s, all the way up till the 1000s, the Middle Ages, there were these group of Jews called the Masoretes or the Masoretic scribes. These were like the beast mode scribes, okay? These were the guys. Now, okay, do you guys remember how you play telephone? Do you remember how? How do you start the game of telephone? Do you remember? Just like i you're saying, just, say and just, just it to the next person. Yeah, you whisper it, right? And, and so you whisper it from person to person all the way down the line. Well, tell me if we played telephone like this, right? Because if you start, by the time we, we started with your dad and got all the way over to Master Jace over there, it would be like a garbled mess, right? Like the original message, it would just be nonsense. But what if we did this, okay? Because this is what the Masoretes did with the Old Testament. Let's say we take the Old Testament and for every single book—Genesis, Exodus, all the way to Malachi—what if we counted every single word in every single book, and at the end of all, at the end of every book, at the end of Genesis, we would put the number of words that are in that book. And then, not only that, but we underneath that, we wrote, this is the middle word. And then, under that, we wrote, this is the middle letter. And then, what if, when we were making the copies, like, because we're, you know, we've got Genesis over here, and then we've got the other scroll that we're writing over here, if we had to, as we were copying, we said it out loud. So, instead of just saying it in your head, we said, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and we were copying as we were saying it. And then when we were done, we went back and we said, okay, the middle, the middle word is this one, and we go back, oh good, the, the middle words match between the original and the copy. Okay, let's check the middle letter. Okay, the middle the middle letter matches, that's really good. If we did that, do you think that we could be more accurate? By the time we get got through everybody, do you think that the message would be the same? Yes, because the Masoretes were so, so, so careful. There's, there's even more things we could say about how these Masoretes copied the Old Testament. They were so, so, so careful. Another thing that I love about the Masoretes is how much respect they had for the name of God when they were writing the Old Testament. Now, the name of God in the Old Testament, as We're not sure if this is how you pronounce it, but we think it's pronounced Yahweh. And so whenever the Masoretes, Brother Samuel, would get to Yahweh, you know that they would put down their pen and get a whole brand new pen, write the name Yahweh, and then they would destroy that pen never to be used again. Because that pen was exclusively for writing the name of God. And think about how many pens they would go through, Right. So they were so, so, so careful, these Masoretes. And again, that's just a a brief example. There's even more things we could talk about. But they were so careful for for hundreds of years, these Masoretes. And and here's what's crazy. This authoritative text, even though it's hundreds of years older than the Masoretes, when scholars found this charred-up scroll of Leviticus, guess what? Again, they matched. Even the paragraph breaks and just all these things, it's shocking that even though this was hundreds of years older than the Masoretes, it matched because God gave His Word, He kept His Word, and He's preserving His Word so that you and I can read it. Now, this is the last one for this slide. After we have these, these documents, that's where... The King James translators and other translators, they took those Hebrew documents and they translated them into English. That's how you have a Bible. It's because of this this transmission, we could say, the progress of all of these copies. That's how we have a Bible. Okay, so now we're going to get into looking at the New Testament a little bit. And I'm going to give you a little term here, Brother Josiah, it's called textual studies. Okay, everyone. say textual studies. Textual studies. Textual studies, what, have you guys ever sent a text before? A text is just a group of words, right? It's a little document. Well, when we say textual studies, we're just looking at a bunch of documents. We're just looking at a bunch of words. So there are two things that we're gonna look at, and we're gonna say we're gonna do this second one, in the, or excuse me, we're gonna do this one in the next slide. But one of the, one of the first things you'll wanna do if you're looking at an ancient book, you wanna see how many copies are there? How many manuscripts does this particular thing have? And we'll, we'll break this down a little bit as we go. Okay, so how many, how many manuscripts are there? But the second one is, if we've got all of these copies, what's the oldest one that we have? So how close are the copies to the autograph or the original. How close are these copies? So let's break this down. Now, one of my, well actually, well yeah, he's one of my favorite ancient historical characters outside of uh, like Jesus and David and some other uh, historical Bible characters. My favorite is this guy named uh, Julius Caesar. Has anybody ever heard of Julius Caesar? He's one of my favorites, a very interesting individual. Well, he wrote a few books and he wrote them very close to 50 years before Jesus, okay? So 50 years before Jesus. What's the problem when it comes to all ancient books? What do we not have? The we don't have the originals or the autographs. So we're just going to kind of erase that. And we're going to try to find when is the next thing that we have. What well, we have copies, right? So when, does anybody want to take a guess? When is the earliest copy? So if Julius Caesar wrote in 50 B.C., when is the the year, when is the earliest copy that we have? Anybody want to take a guess? Is it 45, or is it in the A.D.s, is it 100, 200, 500? What do we think? Haley, give me a guess. What's your favorite number? 200. It is... 900 years later. Almost a thousand years later. So, what does that mean? Julius Caesar wrote his book, but we don't have that anymore. So, there were copies that were made. When is the earliest copy that we have? It's a thousand years after Julius Caesar had died. So, what does that mean? Okay, you have all of this time where we don't know if anything changed or not. So that's kind of the issue when it comes to textual studies. We're going to look at Julius Caesar's book, and we want to know how many manuscripts are there, and then can we trust what he wrote? So let's go into, so that was number two. This part over here is number two. So because let, let, let me clarify something. What if we had a very er, an earlier copy that was, say it was 100 instead of 900. What would that say about the copy? Would it be better or worse? It'd be better, right? Because it's closer to the time that Julius Caesar lived. So there's, there's less time for things to get messed up. Okay? So let's take a look at the, the number one, the number of copies. My clicker is not liking me today. Okay, so... Oh, never mind. I forgot about this one. Here's the New Testament. And look at when it was written... Very early in those those early parts when it goes from B.C. to A.D. The Bible is written, the New Testament is written so early. But look at this thing right here. It says, date of the earliest copy. And look at the year. So how many years from when it was written till our earliest copy? Only a few decades now remember, Julius Caesar was almost 1,000 years. That's a long time of we don't know what happened in that 1,000 years. But when it comes to the Bible, look, it's only a few decades, it's not hundreds of years. Now what does that tell us? The New Testament is very reliable because those copies, how the Bible was preserved, they're very close to when the Bible was written. That shows the Bible you can trust it. But now, now we'll go to where I thought we were going. Let's take a look at the number of manuscripts, the, the manuscripts' reliability. What numbers do we have here? So I just, I just used Julius Caesar's example. How many copies do you think we have? What, what do we think? What's another number? What's, what's, Jase, what's your favorite number? Do you have a favorite number? You don't have a favorite number? Make one of a hundred. a hundred? Okay. Here's the great... that's a pretty good number. Uh, here's the thing with Julius Caesar. We only had ten. We had ten copies of his book. You should have said not. We only had ten. Now, this other book called The Iliad, it's a, it's a very old book. This book has the second most manuscripts out of every ancient book that we have. The Iliad is number two. It's very high up there. Okay? How many do we think there are? Any guesses? Now, I'll just say that ten, you you might think, well, that's not a whole lot. But here's the thing. Ten is actually pretty good, which is kind of crazy to think about. Having ten copies of Julius Caesar is actually pretty good. Because there are some books that we have like seven. There are some books that we only have three. And then as I mentioned earlier, there are some books that we don't have any. So if Ili- the Iliad is number two, how many manuscripts, Brother Sam, how many manuscripts do you think we have of the Iliad? I'll just say it is a lot more than ten. How old are you? How old am I? Thirty-one. 31. No, it's way more than that. 643 Which is amazing For ancient history Now Does anybody want to take a guess Which book has the most Out of any ancient book Which book is number one Take a wild guess The New The New Testament Very good This one Is the most out of any ancient book And do you want to guess how many manuscripts or copies, how many of the New Testament do you think we have? 5,753. Now, you're looking from the previous slide, and that's really good, but it's not correct. Because that's that's only Greek manuscripts. So if you look at all of the manuscripts, thank you for pointing that out, but that's only Greek. If you add in all of the other ancient languages... And it's actually more than this now. It's actually got gone up because this is an old slide. I need to update it. But it's, it's, a, it's over 25,000 ancient copies of the New Testament. Now, some, now, to be clear, some of these may not be the entire New Testament. Maybe there's only portions of Scripture. But the point is this. There's a lot more of the New Testament than there is of, okay, if you took all of the ancient books and put them in a stack, They would be like three feet high or something like that. Not very tall. If you took all of the Bible manuscripts and stacked them up, it's literally miles. Hmm. So what am I trying to say? The New Testament, we already looked at the Old Testament. The New Testament has so much evidence behind it. The Bible has been preserved is what we're trying to talk about. So here's a few things. Just to make sure we understand. The number of those manuscripts, it doesn't mean that everything in them happened. It just shows that the New Testament is historically reliable. Because that Iliad, the stories in that book didn't really happen. There's a lot of mythology in it. But when you look at that, you can, you can see how the Iliad stayed pretty consistent. It wasn't changed up a lot. And the same thing for the, the New Testament. What it's showing Is that when you look at your New Testament, and then you go all the way back to these ancient manuscripts, the New Testament has not changed. So again, the Bible is not like the game of what? It's not like the game of telephone. You can trust this. This is God's word because he gave it to us. He's kept it. And he has what? Preserved it. Right? Very good. Okay, so are we doing okay? We're just making our way through this a little bit. I know this is kind of a lot. So let's let's kind of go back to this issue. I need to go back to my notes and just make sure I'm not missing anything here. So the first, we, we kind of hit the first thing when it comes to manuscripts. How many are there? Are they old? All that kind of stuff. But there's another issue when it comes to manuscripts. And this is actually where we're going to start getting into translations. Because this is where we get into families. Oops, that was not supposed to happen. Let's see if it will. Okay. Because we've got all these thousands of manuscripts, but then we we have to look at the groups of these manuscripts. And and some people when now does everybody know what I mean by when I say translations? Because you have the King James translation, you have the NIV, you have the ESV, you have the NLT, these other abbreviations, you have all these different types of translations. Now, when I was younger, I thought that a translation just meant they just worded things differently, and it was about readability, meaning it's a lot easier to read the Amplified Bible than it is to read the King James, and I thought that's just what it meant. The issue actually with translations, it's not about if it's easier to read or not. It's actually much deeper than that. Because that's why we want to get into the manuscript families. So what do I mean when I say families? Now, there's a few different... You could say groups. You could say a text stream. You could say a family. And all that means is you have these different manuscripts. And you can put them into groups. Because some manuscripts, kind of, they are over here. They, like if you had... Two or three ver- uh, manuscripts of Matthew and you look at them and you're like, well, these two Matthews, they're pretty much the same. Oh, but this Matthew, this Matthew's really different. We're going to put that one over here. They're mostly the same, but there are some pretty big differences as we're going to find out. So let's take a look at this more in depth. There's one family and you can kind of break these into two. It gets a little bit more complex, but we, today we're just going to stick with two. There's a group called the minority, or the critical text, or the critical family. This this group it has three out of all those twenty-five thousand manuscripts. That big circle I had earlier. If you take all twenty-five thousand of those, three, depending on what scholar you talk to, three to five percent are in this critical text family. Okay, so do I have any math people in here what what is that around 3% of 25,000 it's not very many right let's just say that okay i'm a i'm a bible and history teacher not a math teacher so i don't even try to go with it. so what's the what's the other one it's called, and, and there are so many names i'm trying i'm trying not to make this crazy but we could call it the majority text or the byzantine text now here's the deal obviously if this one over here has three to five percent and minority means a lot or a little minority means a lot or a little which one a little, a little right so majority would mean what a lot, a lot. so obviously then you're dealing with 95 ish percent of all of those twenty-five thousand manuscripts that we have now what's the issue with these two groups okay this critical one, the little one over here, that one is mainly only found in ancient Egypt because Egypt is really good for ancient documents because it's dry and things are not going to deteriorate as quickly. But it's really only found there. and It's found in, in this... Uh, we talked about those Gnostics yesterday, that group of people that were not really Christian and they changed a lot of things in the Bible and, and all that stuff. Well, this, these critical texts... Groups kind of belonged to those Gnostics, a lot of them. Well, this majority text, they were, those were the ancient uh, books of the Bible, those manuscripts, that almost everybody in the ancient world used. They were used over in Rome. They were used in the Middle East. They were used way up in today what we call Turkey. That was called Asia back then. They were used all over the place. And, and, and so that one seemed to be the one that was accepted by everybody. But not this one on the side. So, why does this matter? Okay, why does this matter? Well, which one do you think the King James Bible is based off of? It's based off of the one that has most of the evidence behind it. Now, some people might think, okay, but translations, they don't matter. It's just which one's easier to read, or you should read the one that you will actually read and all that. And, you know, people try to make those claims. And I just think we need to slow down just for a minute and look at some of this, this evidence here. Because when it comes to textual families, it actually becomes a very serious issue. So here is what I'm going to do. We're going to look at just a few things. So everybody, I want you to go, if you have your Bibles handy, I want you to go to John chapter 7. Okay, John chapter 7. Here, I'll let you use mine. Do you want to use mine? Because I want to see if you guys can catch this too. So there's John 3. You're going to have to find John 7. Yeah. So we're, we're going to go to John 7. It looks like I've been going for almost 40 minutes, so I'm going to try to speed things up here. Good. <clears throat> Okay, so uh, John 7, and you guys, I, I, I don't know uh, what, what translation, and, and hopefully this comes across the, the right way. I'm not trying to bash anybody on the head, but if, if you have a King James, I want you to read carefully, and I am going to read from the ESV. Okay? And I want you to try to see if you can catch what the problem is. Okay? Because there's like a really, really big problem here. Okay? So. We're in John 7, and we're going to read 10 verses, okay? Uh, What I'm wanting us to catch is more at the end, but here we go. It says, After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand, so his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples may see uh, the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly." If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For his brothers, for even his brothers believed uh, not in him. So basically his brothers are kind of being sarcastic and they're mocking him. Say, hey, go up, you know, show off. But they didn't even think he could do it. Verse 6, Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, Jesus remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. Now, did anybody catch there is a massive three-letter word that is missing in what I read. But if you were reading in King James, it is there. Did you ladies see it? Did anybody see uh, any, any glaring problem there? So let's, let's break this down just for a second. So the, the brothers of Jesus are saying, hey, you should go up to the feast. And, and uh, Jesus says, no, no. And then he goes up later, Right. So, in the King James, there's a really important word there. You guys see it? Any guesses? Yet! It's a very important word. Because what does Jesus say? I am not yet going. Which means, I'm going to go up, but not right now. Did anybody catch what I read in the ESV? Yet is not there. So, let's paraphrase a little bit of, of what this translation says. Jesus tells his brothers, I'm not going to the feast. And then in verse 10, what does Jesus do? He goes up to the feast. Where I come from, that's called lying. Right. Now I want you to think for a moment. Remember, we're talking about Jesus, right? Like the one who is supposed to be the spotless, sinless lamb that died for our sins. If you adhere to some translations, you... Kind of are making Jesus a liar. Sure. So translations are more than just saying it's easier to read. Because what's the problem here? In, the, in those copies, in those manuscripts that the King James is based on, when the King James translators took that, those Hebrew manuscripts and put them into English, uh, and, well, in this case it'd be Greek, because uh, it's New Testament. But that word yet is in those manuscripts. But if you look at that critical text, it isn't there. And so I have a problem with saying that Jesus is a liar. Because then our salvation is kind of on the line. Sure, right? yeah. So this is, a, this is a potentially, or I shouldn't say potentially, it is a really big deal. Let's look at just a few other ones. Let's go to 1 Timothy 3, 16. <clears throat> 1 Timothy 3, 16. And uh, it's, it's way back in the Old Testament, or excuse me, at the end of the New Testament there. First Timothy 3, kind of at the back of the Bible. And if somebody has that, why don't you go ahead and read that loud and, and slightly slow. Go ahead, Brother Samuel. Samuel. 3.16. Yes, sir. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. So great is the mystery of godliness, but now Paul is about to tell us what the mystery was. Who was manifest in the flesh. Now, who was manifest in the flesh? God. God was manifest in the flesh. Keep going.
0: Justified in the spirit, seen of the angels, preached unto the Gentiles. Believe on all the
1: world and received up into the glory. Somebody say amen. Amen. I really like that verse. Now, here's the deal. If you look at other translations, it doesn't say God was manifest in the flesh. Some translations say he, and some translations say Christ. Now, I have heard Trinitarians use those new translations because if you say that God was manifest in the flesh... You're, you're talking about God, like all of God. Not a part of God, not the Son, not God the Son, not some Trinity thing. But you're talking about God from the Old Testament becoming a man. Right, right. And so that's a very key issue where it says that God was manifested in flesh. Not just he, because they try to say, well, it's not God, it's just talking about Jesus. So that's God the Son. That's Trinitarian. No, 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 that's not what the verse is saying. Or they might say that, well, let's see, it says this translation says Christ came. Now, that's a really big deal. So the first part of what I'm saying with this verse, who was manifest in the flesh? Was it God, or is it just saying Jesus? And for those of you that know what the existent Son is, that might be uh, something to look at there as well. But there's another word in there that if you look at other translations, it doesn't say the word manifest. It says the word appeared. Now, again, for, for those of you that have heard of the the divine flesh theory where Jesus was not actually a man, but he just appeared as a man. He wasn't actually flesh and blood. Sure. People can go to this passage and use other translations to promote their false doctrine. Right. So that's a uh, or, or another translation says revealed in the flesh. It wasn't actually flesh. It just looked like it was. Huh? So that's a problem. Um, <clears throat> Really quickly. uh, Genesis. If you go to Genesis 126. We'll we'll just do this one really quickly. In the King James says. And God said let us make man in our own image. And then he creates Adam and Eve. Now in the Hebrew. That's called a volition of intent. All God is doing in that passage. Is announcing to the angels. What he's about to do. It's actually in the Hebrew grammar. What's going on. But in the Amplified version of the Bible. It says let us. Catch this. Father, Son, and Holy Ghost make men in our own image. Does anybody see a problem with that? Okay? Father, son, and Holy Ghost is not in the Hebrew. It's not there. Now I've, I've talked to good apostolic people, they have their amplified and they're trying to tell me how great it was. And I said, why don't you go to Genesis 126? And of course we're very kind and we're having a good conversation. But they're like, oh my, <laughs> right? Because that's not there. Uh, and the last one, this is one of the biggest ones when it comes to translations. And uh, I've got a whole big story on this one. We just don't have time for it. But if you go to Mark chapter 16 and you go to the last 12 verses, verses 9 all the way to 20. If you go to your King James, it's there. But if you go to new translations like the ESV, the NIV, all these other ones, it's not there. They remove it. And, and there's a lot of reasoning, there's, there's reasons why they say that the ending of Mark is not actually authentic, it's not actually there, all these things. But then when you, remember those early church preachers we talked about yesterday, they quote the ending of Mark as though Mark wrote it, because he kind of did. And so there, there's, there's, there's a lot of evidence to show that the ending of Mark is very authentic, it should be in scripture, but new translations take it out. So when we're talking about translations, again, we're not just talking about which translation is easier to read. We're really dealing with, okay, which family are you wanting to follow as far as manuscripts? Does that make sense? Amen. So when you're looking at translations, this is what I teach my students. And again, I'm I'm, going to go through this last one pretty quickly or try to. When, when I'm teaching at Calvary Christian School, what I teach my students is, when we're looking at translations, there are two things that we're looking at. We just did the first one, and that is manuscript families, because the King James uses the best manuscripts. So that's what I teach my students at CCS, We and I teach I teach all the older kids their Bible classes, and, that, and I tell them, when, when we... Uh, read the Bible we 're reading the King James number one because of the manuscript family. The second one is what we call translation philosophy or in other words, how did they translate? So how are the words translated from the Hebrew and Greek into English now don't freak out i 've got three categories here and again we 're going to try to do this quickly. I keep saying that and I do mean it, okay but the first one is called formal. Equivalence or word for word. So when you have those, those ancient manuscripts in the different languages, if you were like, okay, this word is theos um, in Greek. Well, that means God in English. So you would just put God or whatever. You're trying your best to be uh, word for word. You're being very careful in your translation. The second one is called a dynamic equivalence. And that's just kind of the thought for thought. It's just the idea of the passage. <clears throat> so it's not exactly word for word, but it's it's pretty close. Okay. Um, and then the last one is called a paraphrase. And if you know what the word paraphrase means, it may not even be close. It's just the it may be the emotion of the passage. It's just it's not word for word at all, right? Well, which one? Do you think that Jesus... Well, here, I've got the question up here. Which one do you think Jesus would approve of? Remember, we read yesterday where he said that every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God, that's how we live. So was Jesus and was, were the apostles, were they concerned about the words? Or did they say, if we just get the general idea of the Bible, we'll be fine? Which one would Jesus adhere to? <clears throat> the word for word, Right. By every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Well, which one do you think the King James follows? Thank you. Brother Samuel, which one do you think the King James follows? Word word. <clears throat> the word for word. So I tell my students the reason we follow the King James is because it follows the best manuscripts. And it has the best translation method. It's word for word. And so the ESV... I, I'm so thankful that they also do the word-for-word word translation. The problem is the ESV doesn't follow the right text family. So I'm not going to promote the ESV. So this is, uh, this is uh, the second reason. And, and uh, really quick, there was about just over 50, if you look at all of the King James translators, it was translated way back in 1611. It took them about seven years to, to complete the translation. And there was over 50 of them, if you count all of them. There was a few that died in between there. But these guys were brilliant. They were the best language experts of their day. Some of these guys had been reading Hebrew and Greek when they were five. This one guy used one of the leaders, his name was John Boyce. And when, excuse me, when he was 16 years old, he completed a Greek college course, a very difficult, challenging course. Greek course that normally took people two years to do, he did it in two months. So these, these scholars that, when we say the King James translation, these people that were doing that, they were brilliant. And they were so, so, so careful. They broke up their groups into, have you guys ever heard of these? Oxford, Cambridge, and Westminster. They were the the biggest and best colleges in England at that time. And then in those three colleges, they had three groups for every one. So three times three, that's nine different groups. And each group had a section of the Bible that they would translate. And when the scholars would get together, they would translate their, their own translation. And then they would give it to all of the other members. And they would all debate and make sure that the translation was the best and most accurate translation there could be. And that was just one group. Guess how many times they did that for all nine groups? Okay, that is super careful. They're trying to do the best that they can. They want to make sure that they're translating from the Hebrew and the Greek into English as carefully as possible. So again, the, their translation method, they were trying to be so careful with how they did that. So all of that to say what? You can trust the Bible. Because God gave it, God kept it, and God is preserving it, okay? So two easy slides are coming up, I think. So some people tell me, Brother Herbst with the King James, all the these and the thous it's just so difficult. And I get the, right, the language is a little bit different. But it's I, I, my personal opinion, not that that really weighs very much, but my personal opinion is that if it's the Word of God, I think we should rise to the occasion of studying God's Word. But here, I would say this. If you want a really good Bible, this is what I think you should get. This Bible right here, I have this in my office at CCS. It's called the KJVER, meaning easy reader. It's $10 on Amazon. And what this is, it's the King James, but for some of those words that are kind of tricky, maybe a little bit older, they underline it, and they put a definition below it. So it's a super helpful tool. So because some people try to tell me, well, Brother Herbst, or Andrew, what about, you know, what if somebody's new to church, and, and they don't know anything about the Bible? Should, can't, isn't it okay just to give them an NIV? And I've got a whole story about that, but I would say, no, give them this. Because this doesn't, remember when I said that some translations take things out? This doesn't. This keeps everything as the King James did, but it helps out with a little bit of those words. So that's a great little tool. <clears throat> if you're interested in translations, this would be the book probably that you should start with. Because this topic, it gets super dense. It's, <clears throat> it is fun, but it's, it's very uh, there's a lot to it. Now, this book you cannot get on Amazon. It's just not there for some reason. But if you go to this website, it's a UK website, so you'll be paying in pounds. Uh, it's, it's only, I don't even know, $10 to $15. And it might take a month to get to you, but this, this is a good starting book. Uh, like I said on Amazon, I actually I think there's one on there, but it's $100, so don't do that. Go to this website, buy it for much cheaper. Okay, so to conclude, everyone breathe a sigh of relief. Thank God he's done talking. Okay. So what did we talk about? We talked about God preserving his word. We, we looked at how this happened through the Old Testament. All of those archaeological finds and the Dead Sea Scrolls. And it shows how even that Isaiah scroll, it had been 2,000 years since nobody had, nobody had seen it for that long. And it matches, my Bible's over there, it matches what we have today. And we talked about which translation we should use. As far as it's about the text stream. It's about what manuscripts. And the second one is that translation philosophy. So what this whole lesson If we kind of wrap it up into two things. It would be preservation and translation. So when we're looking at these things. We understand as we looked at yesterday. God gave us his word through inspiration in the anointing as Peter is writing, as Paul is writing. But then when they died, very faithful scribes and people copied the Bible. And then we have people like the King James translators that translated those from those ancient languages into English. And so that's why we can trust what we have. Amen? Brother Brooks.
0: Great stuff. The scripture says that we, we live by faith. We walk by faith. But I'm also extremely glad that we don't have to put on like ten full hats when we enter the church. Or wash our brains out. There is a mountain of evidence for why we believe what we believe. God has done a tremendous job compiling that information. Thank you for bringing it to our attention. We're going to pray and dismiss. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the care that You've taken to preserve it and bring it to us. Lord, everyone here tonight, we've been changed by that Word and the impact that it makes on our life. I pray that You would help us to retain this information, to be able to share it and communicate it with others, and to propagate Your Gospel even further. We love You. We thank You for meeting with us. We pray right now that You would meet with us again tomorrow morning. We ask all these things in your name and for your glory. Amen. 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 Hey, folks, Pastor Jason here again. I pray the message you just heard inspires you to draw closer to God. We also believe at United Church that it's very important to be connected to a local assembly. If you're in the Fergus Falls or surrounding area in Minnesota, we would love to have you join us for a Sunday service. If you're not and you're looking for a local church where you live, we'd love to help with that as well. Take the time to stop by our website, fergusunited.org, send us a message, letting us know where you live, and we would gladly connect you with a great local assembly. God bless. Until next time.